Blog Talk Radio. And now on Blog Talk Radio, you're listening to Wine Talk with Stu the Wine Guru. Wine Talk for today, Wednesday, December 8, 2010. It's 7 p.m. Eastern, and I'm your host, Stu the Wine Guru, coming to you live from beautiful Coral Springs, Florida, as I always do. I'll take your calls anytime during the show at 1-646-381-4860 or email me questions at info at com. You can also go into my chat room here on the show page and chat with other wine enthusiasts or tweet me any questions you like at StuTheWineGuru on Twitter and I'll read your questions live on the show. I want to thank all the listeners out there for getting the word out about my show. Welcome to all of you listening worldwide. I call that the power of the people meets the power of the Internet. Now, if you want to find out more about me, just Google Stu the Wine Guru. You can find the websites, videos, articles, and shows I'm currently a part of. Speaking of articles and reviews, I am writing wine articles and reviews for Yahoo and The Examiner, so look for those as well. I've also made a Wine 101 video series that can be viewed on YouTube, my website, and just about anywhere else on the Internet. Hey, this is Sly Stallone. You're listening to Stu the Wine Guru on blogtalkradio.com. When I'm out making action pictures, I'm listening too. Right now, I'm sipping on a nice Tuscan Red. No actual celebrities were used in the making of this promo. Only celebrity impersonators. Hey, hi, this is uh, John Ratzenberger. When I'm not doing voiceovers for movies or doing commercials... I'm listening to Stu the Wine Guru. I suggest you do the same. No actual celebrities were used in the making of this promo. Only celebrity impersonators. So tonight, my guest represents some of the finest wines to come out of Napa Valley. He's a winemaker with an incredible reputation. The Cabernets, Pinot Noirs, and Chardonnays are world-renowned for capturing old-world taste 
from a New World region. The name of the great vineyard is Clodeval. The name of my guest is John Clues, and he's the winemaker and chief operating officer for Clodeval, and he'll be short, joining us shortly. Of course, the number to call in is one six four six three eight one four eight six zero. Or if you're shy and you prefer the computer, email me your questions for both John and I to info at stewthewineguru.com or tweet me your questions to at stewthewineguru on Twitter. And again, I will read them live on the show. As always, I've opened up a chat room here on the show page for listeners to go into and chat. You can also ask questions of John and myself, and I'll check into the chat room live periodically during the show to get answers for you. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Either. Okay, I know I haven't been in a movie in a while. I got it. It's okay. I've embraced it. But when I'm not being either, I'm listening to Stu, the wine guru. Scott, you'll get your turn, okay? (laughs) No actual celebrities were used in the making of this promo. Just celebrity impersonators. Yeah, hi, this is Tony Danza. You listen to Stu the Wine Guru. He's not bad. I listen to him every once in a while. You know, drink a Tuscan Red, try to take down the edge. Pretty good. I like him. Not bad. But first up, I want to thank the listeners who are following me on Twitter. I love social media. I can talk directly to my listeners, my guests. I enjoy the immediacy of the medium. I like the ability to give updates in real time, and my guests are doing the same to promote the show, so thanks to Twitter and social media. Some show notes. My next TV appearance will air in late January, early February. I'll be guest on the Emmy Award-winning PBS show, Check, Please, South Florida. I'll be kicking off the fifth season, so look for that. I've also been asked to be a guest on the hit CNBC World Show, Wine Portfolio, with host Jody Ness. They're on their Miami Wine and Food Show, uh, and they're going down to – they came down here to Miami and to check out the wine and food scene. I'll be showing them where to go, discussing my radio show and the wine industry. Now, taping finished at the end of November, and the show will also air in late January, so check your local listings for that. I have to say it was a blast working with them and showing them around Miami and South Beach. There'll be more TV appearances coming up, and I'll let you know via this radio show and Twitter as they happen. Also, I'll be narrating a promotional digital video for multiple Napa wineries, so I'll let you know when that is complete. For all of you wanting to know what events I'll be attending so you can meet up with me, like my tweeples do on Twitter, January 27th through the 30th, I'll be at a media sponsor covering the second annual Key West Food and Wine Festival. So come down eat some great food, drink some great wine, and be sure to come and say hi to me. February 23rd through the 27th, I'll be covering the 10th Annual Food Network South Beach Wine and Food Festival. And I'm still amazed that this has actually been a decade. It's incredible. It just seems like uh, it just happened yesterday. And you really have to check this event out because it's pretty much amazing. All the cool chefs, the who's who, the wine industry, and of course, me, I'll be there. So if you're going to get into the sun, and you're going to have some great food down here in South Beach, look for me, track me down, say hi. March 18th through the 20th, I'll be reporting on the Boca Bacanal event. Lots of good stuff happening in the first few months of the year down here in Florida. That is the schedule so far 
course, keep listening here, and I'll keep you posted. Since I'm a media sponsor for the Key West Food and Wine Festival, I've worked out a great deal for my listeners. You can now purchase tickets and receive a 20% discount. All you have to do is use the code STWG during the checkout process. Now, keep listening in and following me on Twitter for more information. If you have questions I have answers, call me at 1646-381-4860 or email me at info at com. You can get into the chat room and voice your opinion or call on Twitter, tweet me at StuTheWineGuru. Now, let me make sure that everyone listening knows John's website and go there for more information about his great wines. To learn more about John Clues and Clodeval Wines, go to www.clodeval.com. That's C-L-O-S-D-U. V-A-L.com and find out where you can buy his wines locally in your town or buy them directly from Clodeval. I mean, that is the beauty of the Internet. You can sip on some wine while you buy some wine. All right, so without any further wait, let me bring on my guest for the evening, John Clues of Clodeval. John, welcome. Hello, Stuart. Thank you very much. Uh, it's great to have you here. I, I want to thank you first and foremost for coming on my show and discussing your great wines with us. It's definitely an honor to have you here tonight. Well, thank you, and thanks for inviting me. No problem. And, and anyone listening, I want to say, uh, anyone who's traveling to Napa, this is a must-stop on your vacation, most definitely. So just as just to let you know how the show kind of goes here, John, um, I have tweeted questions that are coming in left and right. I have email questions as well as people in our chat room here live. That will interact with me, and I will interact with you and give you the questions that they have. Um, so let me start off by saying um, my first question is, so what was the impetus that made you go from accounting to winemaking? <laughs> um, it, it was easy. I've, I did not enjoy accounting very much. I was mostly in auditing, and I'd been a, a wine lover for many years since my late teens, and... Okay. I got to a stage where I just figured I I didn't want to stay in accounting for the rest of my life, and my 
energies and enthusiasm was was with wine, so I decided to go back to school. Well, I can see certainly <laughs> auditing would definitely make you want to drink some wine. That's just my opinion on that. <laughs> but um, <laughs> if you don't drink it just from auditing <laughs> and the re- response you get from people, I, I don't know what would make you. Um, what was it like learning about wine at the University of Cape Town versus UC Davis? There's got to be you know, a definite difference there, one versus the other. Yeah, I um, at Cape Town I I studied um, not not wine but um, economics and jurisprudence, so very different. Although I I did um, learn to like wine there, I travelled a lot to the wine country and had friends whose parents were in the wine business, and so you know got to learn initially about the Cape wines and the different varieties and fermentation and all of that, and then. Um, my first really academic study was at at Davis, and that was mostly a biochemistry and learning the processes of um, how flavors come about, what the processes are. And uh, to very, Cape Town was just purely um, tasting and the fun of it and the mystique of wine, and then Davis was hard science, so quite, quite a different approach. <laughs> sure, absolutely. And I was going to say, I mean, you were going to school at that time um, well, let's just put it this way. You know, South Africa was not really a well-known region at the time for wine to what it became later on um, during the time that you were going to school in Cape Town. Um, versus UC Davis, you were there during the time where, let's just say, everything was happening. Yeah. yeah there, there was a I – mean, Cape, Cape Town – or the history of the Cape was they, the wine industry goes back almost four centuries, but it's never, not much of it's ever been exported, so the rest of the world didn't really understand. And when I was there, the main varieties were uh, red was Pinotage and the white was uh, Chenin Blanc or, or Stian, they called it. And it's only you know, 20, 30 years on that they've um, started planting or, or planting a lot of the more international varieties like Sauvignon Blanc and Cabernet and Pinot. Um, you're right, and in the in the 80s, when I was in at Davis, it was um, considered the the best wine school in the world. But also, it was boom time uh, California, boom time Napa. The, the, the number of wineries in Napa was was doubling every every 10 years or so. Most definitely. Yeah. Um, so I'm just going to bounce around here as I do. Um, I've got some email questions in that have come in, so let me just kind of get to a few of those uh, right off the bat. Uh, the first one is from Ichi Wine from Osaka, Japan, and it says, Stu, you have a great show here. I've been listening from your early shows last year. My question for John is, have you traveled to any part of the world that is not making wine now but you think could? Thank you both. Okay, well, I just want to thank Ichi Wine from Osaka, Japan, for your question for John. John? Yes. Um, you know, I, I must say that most places I've traveled in the world do make wine, um, including Japan. <laughs> and I was there last yes. month, actually. And I, Koshu. I've, yes, I've, I've really liked the Koshus I've tasted. They're um, a little lighter in body than what we're used to in California, but the wines are, are delicate and delicious with Japanese food. So well done, Japan. Yes. Um, you know, it's the, um, the grapes that we're used to uh, with most of the wines are vinifera grapes, which... 
who come from Mediterranean Europe, and they grow by far the best in Mediterranean climates around the world. And when you take those grapes and try and grow them in a more humid uh, atmosphere, I, I grew up in Rhodesia in Africa, and, and right. some, some farmers try to grow the vinifera grapes there and had great difficulty with, with the fungus diseases, basically rot and mildew. And they they still tried though, and they they made some some wines. But what what I find in in climates like that, like Florida here, they um, they just they change the varieties to um, to native varieties, uh, so not vinifera, but varieties like muscadine in Florida that can grow in that climate, and they they make wines. They they're different from you know the famous French ones or, or the European ones, um, but they they still do have wine industries and. You know, and the the locals will buy the wine. So right. I think you could you can grow some sort of grape. I mean, we even have grapes grown in Alaska, you know, one extreme to the other. So I think it's possible to grow grapes anywhere. It's just with a lot more difficult outside of the Mediterranean climate. And I was going to say, I mean, on that note, isn't it the 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 grapes need to kind of um, you know suffer as they as they say they have to suffer a little bit. You know, you have to make them kind of reach yeah. up. The vines need to reach up, you know, and and try to go to the water source, and that you know you don't want to make it too to uh, to the point no. where is irrigation and water is constantly flowing, and it's kind of part and parcel of it of the of the process, is it not? Yes, it's um, we, we talk about uh, wine uh, vine stress, and the it's we we monitor it scientifically though you don't <laughs> if there's too much stress the vine just shuts down and goes to sleep and you you lose your grapes, um, right. But you're right. It, it, you need moderate stress uh, to get the most flavorful fruit. And if, right. if the vine, if, if the vine just has all nutrients and and all the water in the world it needs, it'll uh, produce much less crop and just take to a vegetative growing. So trying to grow into a tree. So some stress. Right. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so the next one is from Bien Cave from Nice, France, and it says, "Stu, kudos to you on your great show." I happened upon it last week, and I am hooked. I would like to ask John if he thinks the European market for Napa wine is expanding or contracting. And thank, it says thanks and, shan, and santé to both, you both. Um, I, I think it's expanding, um, but uh, Napa wines in general are expensive because it's uh, well, the land is expensive here. And also because the the farming techniques and the, the farming expertise here is, is the best in in the country and also the most expensive. And um, so exporting well to a country like France is is very difficult because the the French are chauvinistic and of course <laughs> they would rather <laughs> buy their their own expensive wine than Napa's expensive wine. But um, other markets like like Benelux, um, Denmark, Scandinavia, Germany, Switzerland, um, those markets are are expanding. And a little bit depends on exchange rates, but I think they they will continue to um, buy the better California wines and certainly some of the, the better Napa wines that some of them do represent good value. Yes, most definitely. So uh, I guess I'm going to go back to some of my questions here, um, and then I'll get back to some more that have been emailed that, that have come in as we as we speak and some of the Twitter questions as well. Uh, the question I have here is, do you, do you find, uh, it says, do you, let's see, uh, Dean Guide from San Rafael, California, tweeted, do you believe in point system for scoring wines? 
Um, I mean, that, that's a fairly loaded question. I, I, I mean, it, when you're arguing about our points better than just descriptions, um, I, I prefer descriptions. And um, people like Hugh Johnson, the Englishman, says that, you know, the you've got to look at the wine, uh, look at where it comes from, what type of wine it, it is, and what historically the wines from that area, and then rank that wine according to it, its site, its terroir, and, and the history of that era. And if you rank wines like that, you should be able to get, if you like, uh, a top ranking, so five out of five stars or 100 out of 100 points from every, every area you're looking at. You, you're, looking at you're saying, is this an excellent example of dry Moselle you know, from Germany, or is it a, right. an excellent example of, of Pinot Noir from Canero Snapper? And each within each of those rankings, there should be a you know 100 percent or you know five out of five a top mark achievable for each of those wines. And should you compare the one with the other? No, they're completely different. So I, I'm right. I, I would say I'm, I'm not for the hundred point system. You know, suggesting okay. that yeah, I kind of agree with you. I, I but although and I just say to to you know most of the, the uh, listeners and and I've I've always espoused this that it's a guide. And if you're a novice or you're someone who, you know, doesn't know something about a particular wine and wants a general guide as to uh, what maybe someone who's a little bit more versed uh, feels about it, then it's good to have something to utilize. But I wouldn't use it as a crutch and I wouldn't lean on it and say, okay, this is the end-all, be-all answer-wise for this particular wine or wine in general. So that's just, my, you know, yeah. my thought, my two cents. No, that's that's um, exactly right. But what I, I noticed too with the rankings is that, I mean, just going back to Germany and and Rieslings, is that when you look at a tasting of a vintage, that the all the top wines happen to be sweet wines. So yeah. you know, beer and alsaces and trocken beer and alsaces, and and the dry wines, the cabernets, are always rank lower. And to me, that's that's silly because there should be a if the sweet wine can get 100 points, why can't the dry wine? Because in for the style of wine that it is, you know, in the vintage, there's got to be a 100 out of 100, you know, four four wines in that category. And yes, um, so I, I think you need to look at at each category, each region, and then judge wines within that, and and don't really compare the very sweet ones to the very dry ones. It's, they're different categories. Right, and take everything with a grain of salt, like you said. Um, so, Ann Will from Singapore tweeted, will the U.S. wine consumer recover from just price-driven to value and quality-driven? And he, he follows that with, if not, there won't be any good producers left. So, I guess he's asking the question. Yeah, I, 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 I think that's a generalization. And I think that there are a lot of quality and and, um, and 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 good quality for for value available. You might have to. You know, I, I I'm not sure what the market's like in Singapore and what what the importers are like. But um, right. You know, I, I know within the producers, even here in the Napa Valley, or let's say in Northern California, there there are a lot of producers who are very serious about making the best wine from their particular site. And um, mm -hmm. if, if you look around, you can find some some good values, even even from those very serious producers. Oh, absolutely, so, absolutely. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I was going to say, uh, I'm going to just bounce over to another question here. Who are your earliest influences early on in your career in, you know, in Napa, and, and what do they teach you? Yeah, I, um, I, I, had, I, I drank wine long before I came to the U.S., and when I first came to California, I was, when I was at UC Davis, I was working in a famous wine store in Sacramento called Cordy Brothers, and I was tasting um, hundreds of uh, wines a month, um, in, in other, I mean, including California wines, but also wines from around the world. So my um, sort of upbringing in wine was, was influenced enormously by world wines and not, not just by wines of California. Um, but within California, um, you know, I first started tasting California wines in the late 70s and when I lived in London. And uh, Robert Mondavi came through and then Claude Val after a while. And then the less expensive ones, Paul Masson was strong there, some Gallo products. And then coming to the Napa Valley, I I, um, I liked, in the early days, I liked Mondavi was, was one of my favorites. I, I've always liked Claude Val. Um, Newton Vineyards made some very nice wines. Um, mm-hmm. Some early wines from Beaulieu were very good. Some of the, the some of the Inglenook wines from like 1982 were, were excellent. The Cabernet with the star on the label. Sure. Um, but I was going to ask, you know, I, I guess really what I was trying to figure out was, so what did they teach you? I mean, in other words, what they were influences on. I, I take it Robert Mondavi was in the fact that the the his attitude towards wine and his attitude towards uh, people enjoying it. Um, you know, Inglenook in the sense of the wine that was produced. What were you know what what did you actually you know learn from these different winemakers in experiencing them and trying them? Yeah, you know, I, they they were all a little different. But I mean, what I liked about Mondavi Winery back in those days was the the amount of research and the amount of enthusiasm they had for wines and for comparing their wines to what they considered the best in the world and then looking at, at their soils and, and the enormous amount of research they put into it to continue to try and improve. And, and in those days, make very serious wines, but elegant wines and, and wines that go well with food. And that, that right. was the theme for you know all of California back in the 80s and early 90s. It's, it's changed a little now. But, but that, that, that was what I, I learned. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Vinotology from Kennewick, Washington, tweeted, how does a year like 2010 alter your approach in the vineyard and in the winemaking process? That's a good question. Yeah. um, 2010 for for Napa was a a cooler-than-normal year and um, dry-ish winter, but but cool spring, so late late bud break. And... um, by the end of June, we were all thinking it was going to be one of these November harvests. And um, so you, you start, it was also fairly humid, um, a lot of moisture, especially in Canaros. So, you know, one of the things you have to do is, is start being aware that mildew pressure and, and fungal disease is going to be higher than in, in a normal year. So you, you'll keep an eye on that and, and spray a little more if you have to. Um, and... And then as as the year went on, we we had to well we always leaf pull uh, the vines, the Chardonnay and Pinot vines, to 
um, help circulation of air and reduce the amount of, of fungal diseases you get. And so mm-hmm. in, in 2010, we we pulled a few more leaves than we would do. And um, and that was, was good from the fungal disease point of view, but we had a real hot spell in, in the middle of August, which um, took degrees up. I think we had historic highs here and uh, got quite a lot of sunburn because of that. On the, on the west side sure. of the lines, and had to cope with that then, which meant dropping some grapes in the vineyard and also sorting very carefully when when they came to the winery. But the you know, overall, it was one of these cool years with a a nice Indian summer. We we picked in through the middle of of October, and um, and the, I think the the wines are now showing um, the signs from from a cool year, which for for Napa Valley produces some of the highest quality uh, years. Um, in the winery, we um, with that that heat spell in in August, we got well, say some sunburn, but there was also um, although the sugars weren't very high uh, early September when we usually start picking, we found that the flavors were were nice and the um, the colors came out in our grape samples really quickly and, and were very intense, which meant that the the longer cooler season that we were getting riper. Um, Phenolics and just phenological ripe grapes at at lower sugars than we've seen in the last few years. And right. for our for our wine style, that that's great because we we've always tried to keep alcohol at at moderate levels rather than go over fourteen. And and so we we started picking in in um, the second week of September seriously, bring in wines, and we found that the, the early Merlots and um, some of the Pinots came in with. Sugar's a little lower than we usually see, like 22.5, But after right. um, after a couple of days, there was a little bit of soak up from uh, some small amount of dimpling that was happening. And so the alcohols came up to where about normal for it's 13, 13 and a half, and uh, um, but with soft, ripe tannins. So it, I think it's going to turn out to be a, a very good year, actually. And you, and you adjust, essentially... Your picking uh, time, meaning that you, you may potentially earlier because it ripens earlier, correct? Yeah, we means we weren't looking at sugar as carefully as we would do in a in a warmer year where the, the sugars tend to go up much quicker than the the phenolic, the, the the total ripeness of the grape, if you like. And yeah. um, and in this year we. We just we relied on on general flavors, on uh, good natural acidity, and um, the sugars were a little lower, but that that doesn't upset us. Right. Um, well, the next one that I have question for you is from Anton F. Fifty Two from Johannesburg, South Africa, and it says, "Hi Stu, I very much enjoy your show. You have great guests on, including tonight's guest. My guest, my question for John is, where do you see the Clodoval expanding to?" in the global market in the next five years? And then it says, cheers to you both. Um, in the global markets, in terms of export, we, we already export to, I don't know the exact number of countries, but we, we're present in um, four or five Asian countries, which is a, a big market for us. Canada is a big market. In Europe, yeah. we, we export to about 10 countries, not not big amounts, but, um, but small amounts. We export to Australia. Um, we're looking at Central America. And 
India is is becoming more interesting. Um, China is Most a definitely. big market. And Russia is making noises. Um, <laughs> the Middle Middle East, Dubai, is has some luxurious resorts that we've we've sold small amounts to, but I think that that's potential in, to increase as well. Sure. Sure. Well, yeah. I, I mean, the interesting thing I have to say is um, I've noticed in in many of the Napa Valley wine companies and winemakers that I've talked with, in that some of them tend to be more U.S. and uh, American centric, for lack of better term, uh, and they don't really do the, the export is not a good portion of their business. So it's kind of interesting just to hear and to see that um, you know the that you're looking outside and looking to expand uh, and 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 interested in areas that definitely, as I see it, and watching the market as I do, uh, are are big players in the in the upcoming years. So that's uh, that's interesting. It's good stuff for you guys. Um, yeah. The next one is from Tim at Seven Springs from Warwick, England. And it says, "Hello, John." I hope things are good with you. As Clodeval are one of the leading cooler climate Pinot Noir and Chardonnay producers from the Carneros, what would be the one piece of advice you would give us about producing each of these varietals? And then he, he goes on to say, we produce uh, a lightly wooded Chardonnay in 2010, still in the second fill barrels, uh, and we'll produce our first Pinot Noir from Young Vines in 2011. And... So he wanted. I guess his question would be: Is you know what? What's a good piece of advice that you give yeah. him? Um, I, I I lived in England for a while, and I, I know the South Downs and some of the vineyards. And we've had um, some interns here from uh, Sussex University studying enology, and um, right. I, I know that the climate conditions, although Canaris is, is, is cool for for Napa Valley, um, it's nowhere as, as cool as the South Downs in, in England. <laughs> so, let, let, um, me, let me interrupt one second for you and, and, and kind of qualify uh, Tim at Seven Springs. Tim lives half the time and is from England. However, Seven Springs is from Hermanus in South Africa. Ah. So I, prob- should have, I probably should have qualified that Pardon yeah. me on that. Um, well, I I know I, I went swimming a couple of times at Hermanus, and I I'm I, I don't know the grape growing very well down there, but um, cool climate. I I think it's I'd rather it be a little too cool and a little too warm for those varieties, Chardonnay and Pinot. And right. if if you are having difficulty ripening, there, there are over 200 clones of of Pinot and um, at least 50 of Chardonnay. Um, that well, we had some problems in California here when we started initially importing the um, the, the Dijon clones of Chardonnay and Pinot, and they're very highly sure. rated, very highly rated in in Burgundy because they early ripeners and produce high alcohol. But that's not what we need in California. We need the opposite. <laughs> we need sure. later later ripening clones. But I think by by using different clones and plant material, um, planting on well-drained sites so that you get Earlier bud break, I think that you you can you know, easily affect the the ripening and and get get riper fruit if 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 the, the climate that you're growing in is is too cool and that that'd be my my main main recommendation. There you go. Well, Tim, 
I know you're listening. Uh, that's a, uh, there's a, a, a warm and a fantastic piece of advice that you can get from uh, Napa Valley legend. So I know you'll, uh, you'll do everything with that. Um, what is it about Clodeval wines that distinguishes it from the fray? What do you feel it does? I, you know, I, I think there are a few things. I think one of the things is the consistency of our style for almost 40 years. And we were founded by a Frenchman and mm-hmm. uh, an, an American who, uh, John Goulet, who has lived in France for most of his life. So really with a, um, you know, a, a European accent. And the idea from the beginning was to produce wines that, that pair well with food and, and pair with a variety of foods. And from and so I, my early upbringing was, well, Cape Wines initially, but then in Europe for eight years. And, and I always, you know, if, if I think of Cabernet or Pinot, and as I ask myself, what, you know, what, what is the wine that I would like to aspire to or I would like to, if I could copy it, get closest to it? And I, I think European wines. And then I would ask myself, well, what, you know, what, what is it that I like about Chateau Margaux or, you know, Le Fleuve, uh, Poulini Monrochet or whatever it is. And, right. and the, the answer to that is that it, it's not the power and the muscle. It, 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 it's the elegance, the balance, the beauty of the wines, the fact that they age, um, you know, the minerality in the whites and in, in the reds. It's just it's the beautiful balance and the long finish. And, right. And that is... What Cordoval has has always strived to do is to make a, a more elegant wine, again wines that that pair easily and with a variety of foods, and um, and I you know we've we've done that for almost 40 years now, and I, I think that sets us apart from many newer wineries and certainly many wineries that are striving to make the bigger and richer and richer wines each year, which I've I've noticed some of our our neighbours doing. So could you say the crafting of the wine also? Would that be yeah. a, a proper term? Okay. Yeah, because yeah, I was going to craft- say crafting. No, this crafting, and it's, it's it's our philosophy is um, we've we've stuck to it with the same philosophy because we I believe that the um, the best wines are those wines that still have a sense of balance and elegance and. Um, are easy to have with a variety of foods. And I, I know that if you put too much oak in the wine or the alcohol is too high or the tannins too high, that the the um, imbalance of the wines really af- affects what, what you you can eat to eat the wine or drink drink the wine with, what type of food. And, um, Most definitely. And, and, and also just the, when I think balanced and elegant wines are just a lot nicer to drink and you want to have a second and a third glass where some of the big, <laughs> Big muscular guys, you know, a couple of sips is fine. You know, then have a beer or something. Yes, yeah. So I have more tweeted here. Uh, Rod Phillips from Victoria, BC, uh, tweets: Do you think there is a taste slash quality difference in wines that are hand harvested versus machine harvested? And if so, which is better? Um, the Val, we. We do both. We machine harvest and we hand harvest. And the answer is it, it depends on the variety. Right. And um, we machine harvest uh, only the Bordeaux varieties, the red red Bordeaux varieties, so uh, 
Cabernet Franc, Cabernet Merlot. And um, and with those varieties where so the machine shakes the vines and the stem stays on the, the vine and the berries get shaken off. And there's some breakage of berry and um and so you get some if you like juice, skin contact in the vineyard, um, maceration. But with, with those Bordeaux varieties and they all the pick machine picking is done at night, so it's done in the cool. And with Bordeaux varieties, we're going to continue to macerate and to pump over and try and extract flavors from the skins for the next, uh, you know, Cabernets stay in contact with the skins up to 40-plus days. So mm-hmm. by by starting the, the the maceration a few hours early in the vineyard rather than the winery, I think you're you're enhancing the process. And oxidation is not an issue with with those varieties because you're going to continue to uh, give vigorous um, aeration and, and oxidation to the, the young wines and the juices, you know, for the next couple of weeks in the winery. So I think that machine picking actually enhances the the, cab, the Bordeaux red varieties. Um, in, in terms of quality, um, I agree with, yeah, with yeah. varieties that are are sensitive to oxidation, don't machine pick them, hand pick them, and those varieties are most white varieties, and uh, in, in Pinot Noir, the thin, thinner red varieties, thinner skinned red varieties. I don't think Zinfandel is a very bad one to pick by machine. Um, again, thin, thin and massive clusters, you're going to really smash them. Um, and they say Pinot and a number of other varieties I, I wouldn't pick with the machine as well. And, and Rod actually follows up a question he just actually asked me now, which says, um, please ask John, what is the best pairing for your Chardonnay? I mean, that's kind of, <laughs> yeah. it's a loaded question because you know, there's plenty of things that I can think of right at the top of my head that I have paired your Chardonnay yeah. with, but I want to, you know, it probably would be an interesting yeah. thing to hear from you. The um, our, our current vintage is, is the 2008, and and it's a uh, so I, the 07 was was a different wine. It was a um, a little more Burgundian, not not quite as fruity as the 08. But I like the 08. Um, my favorite pairing is uh, with 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 chicken, and yeah. uh, the chicken with, with not not a barbecue chicken or something with too much flavor, but, but just general roast chicken or chicken. Cooked, cooked with a white sauce, right? Uh, that's a combination I really like. But it's it's very versatile and um, drinks well by itself. Can go with a variety of fishes. Um, but, but the chicken I can tell you, I, my... I've had I've had it with uh, Alfredo, and it was amazing. Yeah, um, that's exactly. What that I was, was just thinking. something that that was the first thing I thought of. I was gonna, <laughs> but I wanted to hear how you uh, thought about that. So thanks, Rod, for asking the question. I appreciate that from Victoria, BC. Um, some other questions here I'm going to ask you myself. What changes, if any, have you seen in the demographics of your consumer over the last 10 years? Yeah. Um, yeah, we, we like everybody, is, is trying to attract uh, the young consumer because if – you get your hooks into him. You you have you have him as a consumer for the next forty years or fifty. <laughs> and yeah. I'm, I'm joking. And we um, we have a, a seller club um, with about two thousand members. And um, 
and the, the average age of the, the membership is um, probably in the in the late 40s. So it's 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 fairly old. Well, not old. I mean, that's you know, <laughs> thanks, John. Well, it's not. I'm in my late 40s. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> you know, and and today everybody, you know, we're on Facebook and we Twitter and we do all of this, and that that's trying to sure. you know get more millennials and some younger people who are showing Absolutely. interest in wines and, and trying to attract their attention. And um, and we're we're certainly very active um, in, in that sphere. But I I think that in general, in, in I'd say in, in the last five years or say or so, I, I think that we've attracted a number of, of younger consumers. We've also we've done been involved with some uh, product placement in in Los Angeles with the movies. And, right. Um, and for those people who, who watch these Fox and uh, HBO and all those series, we've we've been in in a, in a lot of them and um, taken part in some of the parties with the Emmys and stuff. And and I think that's brought on a lot of younger people as well who see the stars drinking this wine. Let's let's give it a go. And uh, so I think in the last five years or so, our, our demographics have, have uh, come down a little bit. Well, that that and that's a good. And like you said, trying to capture the millennial. Uh, it's like trying to capture lightning in a bottle. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because yeah. you know, there's so many things out there. Uh, oh, there's yeah. so many, there's so but, much impetus, and there's so there's so much distraction, and there's so much going on that you know, it's trying to find the right uh, distraction to attach yourself to, if you will. Well, um, it, it's it's tough. I know when I walk into a, a supermarket or a large wine shop, mm-hmm. I have no idea what you know. A lot of those wines are going to taste like, and all that you see the names in front of you, and you're just like, "Where, where do you sure. start?" And uh, right, and, I agree. and you know, thirty years ago it was a lot easier. <laughs> yeah. <as> many. <laughs> yeah, there was only a handful out there, John. <laughs> yeah. You know, there was only a few that knew of that kind that could talk about it. Um, yeah. So I, I have a question from the chat room. Don Catherine said she'd like to know what a typical day is like for you. Uh, at the vineyard. Um, after you play golf, and after you, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, I've, I'm a terrible golf player, so that's that's not what I do if I if I had to sneak out. But <laughs> right, um, okay. Yeah, Won't give me a secret. Yeah, uh, let me describe a day during harvest, and that's the most exciting time for me, and and I think for most winemakers, and and usually um, so summertime, um, sunlight day, uh, daylight savings time. And I, I always start off in, in the vineyard, sampling different blocks. And um, the day before, we, we have a harvest meeting every every morning at about 11.30 or so, and we talk about what's going to happen the, the next day and what which grapes will come in, which blocks. And the vineyard manager then let, suggests that, oh, I should take a look at, at this block. It looks like it's coming on quickly or that. And then we draw up this, the sampling uh uh, map and then it's the very first thing I'll I'll be out there getting grapes, tasting them, uh, looking at the cities, look, looking for any other issues that there might be in terms of stress blocks that might need a little water, and then uh, come into the winery uh, mid morning with the samples and then we'll I'll take a look at what's being processed and the work orders, make sure that everything's going smoothly as far as the, the crushing the grapes or the pressing in the morning. And then um, right. about 10:30 or 11, um, uh, myself and two or three of the the other uh, winemakers will 
walk around and we'll we'll taste um, every tank in the winery, and then um, make any decisions to to press any red lots if if they're ready or not. Um, take a look at a, a few of the barrel fermentations to make sure that um, fermentation is going smoothly. There are no odd smells or anything unusual happening. Sure. Um, and then after that, help out with whatever needs to be done around the winery. Um, have a quick lunch, and then um, in the afternoon we'll have have that meeting, yeah, 11:30 or 12, discuss mm-hmm. how the day is going and and what we're going to do tomorrow. And then the the vineyard manager will leave and go to bed because he's been up since 12 o'clock, and, uh, <laughs> and we'll continue processing in the afternoon and um, make sure that the I don't know, the pick works right. That if we're picking any outside growers, that we, I talk to them and notify them. We'll just make sure that they're aware and that everything's organized, and ask them what time they're going to get the grapes in and approximate tonnages and all that type of stuff. And then tidying up, we try and um, I, I try and not work the. We have crush time. We have a, a morning shift that starts at eight, and right. to till they finish their jobs, and it's usually. Eight or ten hours, not not much, and then an afternoon shift mm-hmm. that starts about twelve, and then we'll work there eight or ten hours, and um, so make sure that the morning shift have completed all their work, and then afternoon shift comes on in and um, meet with them and check that they know what what needs to be done, and before you know they finish their day, and then try and get out. You know, usually as I say, we don't. Because we're working seven days a week, I try and not push the people too much each day because otherwise you start seeing mistakes if, if people get too tired. And so keep keep the days relatively short, but they are working seven days a week, so they they could break short. Sure, sure then, absolutely. Um, no, that's, that, it's, I'm sorry, go ahead. I didn't want to interrupt. Yeah, but that, I, I usually get home at six or seven and then same thing the next day. And it's, it's fun. It's um, very exciting. To, it sounds it. See what's happening in the vineyards, and then all the fermentation smells in the winery, and the progress with the fermentations is is exciting. And and if the wine turns out really good, that's even better. Yeah. Very hands on. That's good stuff. So yeah. I have a, a question from tweeted from Quitcher Bitchin. That's an interesting name. Uh, and it says, um, Do you plan on using synthetic or glass corks in the future to prevent taint? Um, you know, not 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 at this stage, and we've had um, we, we do a very strict scrutiny of corks that we buy. And on a, a recent trip I I did, I I estimated I smelt about a thousand wines at the different event that we opened, and there were two tainted bottles in in that in the entire number that I opened. Or that were open that I, I then smelled to make sure they were fine, and I don't. It, it's sad that those two were tainted, but but that's uh, almost an acceptable level. It, it's a lot better than we we saw ten years ago. Or so where people were talking sure. about percentages of five percent and numbers like that, which are horrifying. But and I, I haven't. I mean, glass. I'm a little scared of because you. I mean, you get the chances of getting glass in the bottle. I don't think is good, and I know that consumers, consumers wouldn't like it. Um, synthetic closures, I've experimented with them, and um, and in the early days, they they were 
tainting the wine as much as um, those corks were. And there was a problem with le- they, a lot of them were colored and the color of leaching of co- uh, the color out of the, the synthetics and also what it, the sealing uh, compounds they use on the synthetics weren't as, as clean as the corks. So there were issues with that. Um, you know, a screw cap is interesting. And, um, yes. And I, especially for uh, wines that you intend to be consumed young and fresh, so uh, you know, extended aging is isn't a concern. And um, you know, and that that's certainly interesting. I I must say I I like um, being able to um, keep a bottle in the fridge with a cap on, and you unscrew it and pull a glass. And uh, and I say for for wines like. I mean, I think New Zealand for their Sauvignon Blancs is it's an obvious um, solution to the cork yes. problems they had in the past. And you know, Pinot for the ones that are lighter body that you really want to drink in one or two years, I think that's it's a good solution too. But you know, for our Stag's Leap District Cabernet, it, it's it's not a yeah. I don't think it'll be happening anytime soon. No, <laughs> I think I'd, I'd, putting that on them. Yeah, I'd rather um, pay it. Do do a lot of very strict selection and pay a dollar per cork and get something that'll last for twenty or thirty years. Sure, sure. So uh, my question for you now, I have I go back to few mine. Um, any new varietals you're experimenting with right now that you feel have great potential for becoming a Clodeval offering? You know, we we don't do a a few years ago. We we were playing with several other varieties and and. Uh, Marketing department um, just took a step back and said, "You know, you guys, you you've got to stay focused. You've got one of the greatest vineyards in the Valley for Cabernet and Stags Leap, and you've got the greatest vineyard in Canaris for Pinot and Chard. Why don't you concentrate on those and really do those well, mm-hmm. um, rather than?" And we made a, a little bit of Sangiovese and we made some Syrah, and, um, and we, we were playing with other varieties, um, and. So after that, we, I, as a winemaker, I still get a kick out of making some Primitivo and Zinfandel and Petit Verdot, and and we do that in very small quantities for our cellar club, and right. for for sale only in the tasting room. But our, our concentration is really on making the best wines to uh, from our two main vineyards, and that's uh, Chard, Pinot, Cab, and Mello. So I, I think that's a good decision. And, and I think, and I have to say, you guys do a phenomenal job of doing it. So. Um, I think moreover that my question was geared in the sense that since you do such a phenomenal job with what you make, you know, I would think almost anything that you guys would, you know, put your mind to or that you would consider putting out um, for the mass, critical mass, would be, you know, just, you know, as good as everything else that you've made. So, I mean, that was kind of the reason I was going in that direction. Um, well, thank you. Yeah. So, how how does Cotevault make use of the latest viticultural advances in making wine? Um, yeah, you know, the uh, up here in Stag's Leap, we um, found phylloxera again uh, in in the late '80s and early '90s, right. and ended up um, pulling out everything and, and replanting again. So, our Stag's Leap vineyards are and the, the oldest was you know, planted in 1990, so that's just 20 years old, which is not very old. But Canaris, um, they're a little older because we didn't plant with AXR, the rootstock that was eaten by Flusher. But in, in terms of you know the replant, when we went back in 
to stag's leap um, for the second time um, the approach is very different um, originally they had one route uh, one clone no irrigation a standard um, eight eight by by 12 planting space to to work with the big tractors and uh, no underground drainage anyway uh, the approach when we came back was to First thing you do is you find out exactly what soil type you've got, and so you start digging holes with backhoes and doing soil analysis for for the structural components of the soil and also the chemical components, and knowing exactly what you have in each parcel, and the more diversity you've got, the more holes you have to dig to find where the soil changes are. Once we establish that, you then uh, choose suitable rootstocks to go in that particular soil site, and and then you um, well we we had a lot of experience in in terms of the the, um, the varieties so we we knew that Cabernet and Merlot were superb in Stag's Leap so we we went back with those varieties but with numerous new clones which which had come onto the market since then and we now have about um, ten Cabernet clones uh, five Merlot clones about five Cabernet Franc clones two uh, Petit Verdot clones and so. We went back with, with much using science a lot better, knowing, understanding the soils a lot better, with a variety of rootstocks that were much better suited for that soil than the original one. Um, a, a really mix of clones that give you different attributes in terms of color and aromas and, and uh, tannin levels, acids. And, um, right. And then with drip irrigation, and now we have uh, uh, weather meters in the vineyards. We have soil probes telling us what the the, the soil moisture is, the humidity is, um, and temperature gauges and uh, mildew indexes. We're <laughs> compared with the earlier planting, we're so well equipped now, and um, and I think as a result, the, um, you know, the the quality today is is grape-wise is considerably better than it was 20 or 30 years ago with the first planting. And I think you can taste it as well. You taste it in the wine. Well, I, I only have, believe it or not, only one minute left, so I want to I take the time and thank you uh, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. I have a million other questions, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to have you back, John, very soon, as soon as I can, uh, so we can go over more questions and, and all the ones that, other ones that I got that were tweeted as well as uh, emailed in. Um, okay. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Uh, I really appreciate it. You're, you're welcome, Stuart. Uh, thank you very much for the great show. Oh uh, no, and and uh, and please come back again and uh, and th- and thank uh, Claude Duval for for bringing you on for us. No, no. Well, thank thank you, and you're welcome. Have a great evening, John. Thank you. Same to you, Stuart. Bye. Okay. That was John Clues of Claude Duval. Well, that's the show tonight. I want to thank everyone who listened in, who emailed in, who tweeted in the questions. I want to especially thank, of course, John Clues of Claude Duval for coming on and telling us about his amazing wines and company. Uh, go to www.clodeval.com and check out John's wines and info there. Um, as always, if there's any questions you have about the show, you can email them to info at com. You can also tweet them to me anytime at my Twitter handle of Stu the Wine Guru. You can go to my website as well at www.stewthewineguru.com and click on the link for all my wine articles, videos, and to listen to archived wine talk shows by clicking on the picture of my guest. As I always say, if it's time to pour the wine, it's time for Stu the Wine Guru. Drink up, good wine, and of course, good night. Mm-hmm.
now on Blog Talk Radio, you're listening to Wine Talk with Stu the Wine Guru.